is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while, it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kirk Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Allman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite, Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course, Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstand will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other songs so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's going on? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now, it was a big hit. My mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big hit. She would see me writing in my diary. And she said, you're writing in your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. <laughs> do, do you thank her for... For uh, doing yes. that? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion, like a dope. 
who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Sol e Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting yes. to learn the accordion at that age. <laughs> the accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm, I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, so I'm just remember, curious how vivid your memories are. I remember it were yesterday. Do you remember being ner- nervous before? No, this? I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. <laughs> Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck. In Newark, New Jersey, and what was also ever present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, Don. Where do you taste this cocoa? Man? Your mouth and your mouth. Like Holy Communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Frank and Arrow. So he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old, easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Francanero tonight and tomorrow? I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs> Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddie. It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddie, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddie, like that. You have a standing invitation. MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, largely because it was the name of his son, whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now, and then the scary realization, where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis. And when they left off, she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with Who's Sorry Now? But would she have another one? Donnie Kirshner, and he was a publisher, with a broken-down office and a broken desk and a broken chair. And he called me and he said, I have two kids, they're phenomenal. Uh, They're great songwriters. I said, everybody has great songwriters. So he said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was when Who's Sorry Now hit. We had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors, and I'd get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie with his elbow, like, look at this place. So (laughs) they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play the song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I got to write in my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then he Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year for Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57, I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing a solo neo in Italian and English. So, um... And then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he got his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, 
It's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian. And of the favorite songs of that language, Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. The Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single Mama would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language that she actually learned as a young kid. Three years old, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in in their colloquial language. How how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflict of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even till today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all, because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no uh, guttural sound, like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. (laughs) You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union... Did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel 50,000 watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day, and it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. 
and I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store, and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was not was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta, coming. There were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, uh, do you like American music? And they said, nein, nein. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they, they had heard my, my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know, it was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, wow. which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary-breaking. Her title track for the movie Where the Boys Are would reach number four on the charts, and the Fort Lauderdale, Florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break. And it caught on a little too immediately. When I went to do the movies, well, Fort Lauderdale was a prairie. It was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city. That was the police force. When Where the Boys Are was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale, 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale, and they had to call in the National Guard. They had to call in the Coast Guard. I-95 was a parking lot, and, and kids were sleeping on the beach, and, and uh, lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star-Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole. Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamers series, Connie Francis's life, her story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream, but not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience 
and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview, and I, and I didn't... Uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered, and then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims' Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder and bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it? I'm a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, But I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends, and also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh, what kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. (laughs) 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 It was one thing. Then they said to me, "We, uh, you have." I said, "Wait a minute." They they wrote down Peggy Smith uh, on my admittance, and I said, "Wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis." And they said, "No, we do that to protect your identity." I said, "I want people to know where I am." I want my name. No, it's a hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, look, I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star. So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. (laughs) To close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren who started out his career as a songwriter 
for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren wanted to elope after one of her shows, he ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again. He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his daughter? (laughs) Yeah. So it could have been any male. But especially Bobby. I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write, although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? The, the horrible. The MACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, save for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys and 18-year-old kids, the average age of the Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, Was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Well, I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton, and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, what, what was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims, an American dreamer. And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam, and it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad, my father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, 
on Merle Haggard. The Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable. Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you. Miles Davis, too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. stories and now it's time for our voices of main street segment brought to us by the great folks at job creators network there's nothing like seeing a small business succeed and when a small business can save a town oh my goodness that's even better and today we're talking about a family business that did just that it became an internet sensation revived a dying hobby and brought new life to the small town of hamilton missouri quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick and comfortable blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, in our town here, we have 13 shops. They are all fabric specific. So when you go into a shop, it's going to have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here. You can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Down, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world. And every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, When you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins. It's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful 
or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is gonna be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're gonna take care of them, what are we gonna do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the Goodwill, someone's gonna go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort, led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008, market crashed. My kids wanted to, they got worried about what we were gonna do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm gonna pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know, it's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really, are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together, you know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house. It was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here, and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable, and we started machine quilting for people. And Alan is a computer guy, so when he, he bought the machine, he started looking at what quilting was doing online, and it had not yet made the jump online, and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online, and I said, sure, what's a tutorial? And he said, well, I want you to teach people to quilt online. And, uh, and I said, how will people even find it? And he said, we're gonna put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's gonna be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's gonna go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching. People then called and said, hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine, it's my fabric. You can't use it, have it, <laughs> you know? And they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said, the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now. And maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over. And a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove of the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as, like, you, you get married, and, like, your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years, and it's like, no, we're still really happy, but we know that this, you know, the, you know it doesn't come free. It takes more. Or we're having a baby! Look, it's right there! And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20-year-olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but, like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri Star spends so much time renovating 
that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them, you know, if they, if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like, hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the, to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we, are, we have more time and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it, be, it was the center place for stringed cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town and that town became the center for string. It would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby 
has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. This is the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories of songs, and you're about to hear a great story about an amazing song, Gimme Shelter, which you're listening to right now, and was recorded in 1969, and on this day in history, an important vocal track was laid down that made this song this song, but let's take a listen to more of Mick Jagger. And in 1969, this was the lead song off the Rolling Stones record, Let It Bleed. And the vocal track we're going to talk to you about is from a background singer, Mary Clayton. And it's a remarkable background track. And we're going to tell you the story of that track. As we often do here on Our American Stories, we tell you stories of songs and how they came to be. And you hear from the songwriters or the singers or the musicians themselves. And on this day in history... On November 2nd in 1969, on this day in history in 1969, that's when the track got laid down. So this is the best of both worlds. We love doing this Days in Histories, and we love stories of songs, and we're combining them here together. A little bit about Gimme Shelter, by the way, because Martin Scorsese, one of our favorite directors here on the show, used the song three times in his soundtracks, in Goodfellas, in Casinos, in The Departed, in the movies themselves, too, not just the soundtracks. And oddly enough, not in his documentary of the film that he did on the Rolling Stones, a live concert performance at the Beacon Theater in New York, which Scorsese filmed, and it's called Shine a Light. Let's take a listen to Martin Scorsese and his affection for this song and this band. I guess I can say that in many ways, whatever I I do with movies and in movies began with listening to the Rolling Stones and the way that their music interacted with the world that was around me. Their songs sort of sparked sensations and images that stayed with me and that grew and changed. And that's why I wound up putting so many of their songs into my pictures over the years. In fact, my films would be unthinkable, really, without them. Mick Jagger recently said, 
uh, Shine a Light was the first movie I made that does not have Gimme Shelter in it. But believe me, it wasn't for lack of trying. And it, and it wasn't, I'm sure. They just didn't play it. A Rolling Stone writer said of Gimme Shelter, by the way, the band has never done anything better. And I think that's true. So let's move ahead now to the, to the backup singer, Mary Clayton. The song was originally recorded out at Olympic Studios in London in 1969, but the Stones were stuck, and they were in a studio in Los Angeles, and, well, the song needed something more. And a singer got called, a local girl living in L.A., Mary Clayton. And let's take the story from there. What a great studio. Boy, did we have some time in this studio. So it was like very late at night, and I was very, you know, a little pregnant. Had curlers and the whole thing in my head, getting ready to go to bed. And we got a call, Mary. It's a group of guys in town called Rolling, the Rolling Somebodies. And they're from England, and they need somebody that will sing with them. They picked me up with silk pajamas on, a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf on my head. We said it would be wonderful if a woman sang this part about that I'd written about rape, murder, and all this. It was in the middle of the night, and, and, and we thought well, we would love to have a woman sing this part. I didn't know her, and from Adam. Then she turned up in a curler, she was in bed, and she got out of bed. And, you know, it was a kind of raunchy part to sing. I said, what? Great murder. It's just a shot away. I started to sing, oh, it's a shot away, it's a shot away, with Mick. She sings the lyrics right along me, and with a lot of personality, which is what was needed. like was that she could sing. She was able to be Mary. She didn't have to bring it down. I said, you want to do another one? I said, sure, I'll do another one. I mean, she just did it like a couple of times, you know. So I said to myself, mm -hmm. I'm going to do another one. I'm going to blow them out of this room. <laughs> I went in again and I did that pass on the, uh, the part that says, uh, Ray Murda, just a shot away. So I had to go up another octave. at sort of two in the morning and then you come in the next day and you go, bloody hell, that's good. Yeah. I don't hear a hand clap. <laughs> and the hair is standing on our arms here. Amazing, astounding. By the way, that clip came from a movie, 20 Feet from Stardom, which won an Oscar for Best Documentary in 2014 and featured the stories and lives of background and backup singers Darlene Love, Judith Hill, Lisa Fisher, and of course, you just heard it, Mary Clayton. And so on this day in history, in Los Angeles, in silk pajamas, curlers, a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf, this woman who Rolling Stones lead singer Mick Jagger didn't know from Adam 
Well, she said it. I'm going to blow them out of this room. She did. On this day in history, Mary Clayton runs down and lays down one of the great vocal tracks in rock and roll history. And this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of every kind here on this show. And you name it, we cover it. Love and death, sports, the arts, history. Wow, crazy idea. We we love to tell stories about our own country, who we are, and who we're about to become. And every once in a while, we talk about mental health. It's a big deal. It's a big issue. And we also talk about technology, and this is where the two intersect. This is where the two come together, and I think many of us worry about the Facebook world, I like to call it, and we like to call it here on the show, in which we all put on a good front and show the very best parts of our lives on Facebook, but we leave out the other parts, the broken parts, the difficult parts. And that leads us to our next guest, Larissa May, founder of Half the Story, and you can reach her on Instagram at at Half the Story. And Larissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Larissa, talk a little bit about yourself before we dig into this. What led you to do something like this? Talk about how old you are, where you live, and what what led to this, well, this little, in a, in a sense, little entrepreneurial activity. But something tells me it's something deeper. Something tells me you're trying to solve a social problem. Yes. So my name is Larissa May. Most people know me as Lars by now. And I li- I'm 23 years old and I live in, in New York. When I was a student at Vanderbilt two years ago, I began my entrepreneurial journey, and I actually worked in the fashion space and started a fashion blog and was kind of juggling between these two worlds, working on different sets, coming to New York, covering for for a variety of publications, because that was the life that I thought I wanted, thanks to social media. But I was juggling between these two worlds, and as I was trying to do it all, I made it look like I was superwoman, when inside I was really suffering from deep anxiety. And during my sophomore year at Vanderbilt, I experienced a very deep depression, which was a very difficult time in my life. And social media only made that more difficult and actually easier in the same, in a very weird, convoluted way, because I was still able to maintain an idea and a facade for my family and friends that weren't there, that I was doing great and I was loving the school. Uh, When deep inside, I was going through a very difficult time. So what I wanted to do, be living in between these two worlds and talking to people on both sides, I realized that in the media, the media that we put out, the media that we consume, it oftentimes portrays a picture that 
isn't real. And, you know, for the consumers, the, a lot of times college students, Gen Z, we're taking this in and trying to live up to a reality that doesn't exist among our own social groups, but also in society at large. So I realized that this concept and this idea that we all live in and we all deal with is the concept of half the story. And every day we are telling half of the story and we're sharing our highlight reel, which is building up walls between us, when in reality it's the stories that we have, the emotions that we have, and the struggles that we've been through that connect us. Indeed. I mean, it's half the reason we talk about the arts. Uh, Arthur Miller, uh, when, when he was uh, eulogizing Tennessee Williams, uh, he had very little to say, but he said this line, and I think it was the most powerful I'd ever heard one author talk about describing another. He made us feel less alone. And yeah. Tennessee Williams was digging into spaces that everybody at the time thought was sheer craziness. Ultimately, it was mental health that Tennessee Williams was digging into in, in plays like The Glass Menagerie. Uh, Larissa, we actually got one of the girls you featured on Half the Story to record her testimony for us so our listeners wow. so our listeners can get a better idea of the emotion and raw power of these testimonies. I want to play it for you. Let's take a listen to Rachel McCluskey. Social media tends to paint the perfect picture. Although this has never been my goal, sometimes those bad days, those off moments... Those difficult times don't make it onto our pages. My whole goal is to inspire people to be their best selves and to find it from the inside out. Because at one point in my life, I was not my best self. Some days I can still tend to feel that way. Some days I'm tired, I don't feel inspired, I question myself, I doubt my path, and I lose trust in the universe that has led me to where I am now. Sometimes I love what I see in the mirror, and other days I want to throw on a pair of sweats and hide. A bit over eight years ago, my life was a mess. I had so many goals and dreams and all the support in the world to get there, but I just couldn't. I was drowning in a world where I felt completely alone and did everything I could to escape that feeling. Eight years ago was also the time when I got sober and my life began to change. It was not easy. It was challenging. I was young. I felt like a failure. I felt like the only 15-year-old on the planet who was sober. I wasn't but I sure felt like it. At some point, I could have been ashamed and felt like this was a demon, but it has become a way for me to help people, to be completely and 100% myself today, to be able to dig deeper and reach my full potential without anything standing in my way. I have grown, I have changed, and I'm a stronger person from it. There are still days where I get overwhelmed, where life feels like a lot, but my life is so beautiful. The universe has led me to where I am now, and I am eternally grateful for that. I am grateful for the events that led me to getting sober eight years ago, and I am grateful for where I am now. And Larissa, that was simply stunning, and it seems to oh, me you're doing, you're doing something really interesting. Social media is the problem, but you're basically saying social media is also the solution. Absolutely. And it's really about, they're both, there are two sides to every story, just like a book, just like, you know, just like our everyday lives. And I think that if we acknowledge that and change the way that we perceive other people's stories as well, take a time, take a time to share another piece of our own, we can make the problem a solution, just as you said. And let's talk about the feedback on how these stories have impacted your followers. What's happening with the feedback? And again, what we'd love to have is you 
share more of these stories with us. And again, folks, uh, in, at Instagram, go to at half the story, uh, post there, uh, just enjoy the traffic there. Uh, but talk about that if you could. Yeah. So there's been, I think the craziest thing about this was I started as a project and thought it would only affect college students in my world. But then I started getting inquiries and stories from people in different languages and different places and telling me that they felt inspired by this project. And there are a couple that really come to mind to me. And one of them is a mother who has, I believe, seven kids. And she sent in, in this beautiful story of her in a bed with seven children and basically just talked about the struggles of motherhood and how how social media creates so much competition, especially as someone you know, who has kids and there's so much pressure, you know, to have kids that succeed and do all these things. And she shared that moment. And there was another mom that actually I had, I had a conversation with and she shared the same thing. But I also found that this is a way for people to make a big statement about something that was going on in their life, whether it was depression, anxiety, or sexuality. There was actually someone at Vanderbilt that approached me and felt so moved by this project, and she asked me if I would photograph her so that she could share her story. And what she did is actually use half the story as a way to talk about her sexuality and announce that to her community because she felt that she had a large support system behind her, and by aligning with a larger mission and a larger group of people, she felt more comfortable to share this with the world. And for me... You know, she came back to me and said, you know, I couldn't have done this without you even a year later. You know, she's commenting and saying, you know, half the story has been such a big part of, you know, my journey in my life and embracing who I am and my strengths and my struggles. And it's so crazy to me that just this platform and this project and this beautiful community has allowed people to share some of the most defining moments in their life and really change the way that they move forward after they do so. Well, so much of Facebook is based and so much of Social media, Instagram and the like is based on envy in the end of people trying to get you to be impressed by your life. And the more you do try and do that, of course, the bigger the walls you put between you and other people. But the most important wall you put up, of course, is the wall between you and yourself. Um, some parting advice uh, uh, for people who are listening. How can they post? What can they do? Larissa, uh, talk to talk yeah. to the folks listening about that. So first and foremost, my biggest goal is half the story is to, to, to change the way that you see other people's stories. And remember that every time you look at something, there's always another side before getting down on yourself. But the second way that you can join and support half the story is by sharing your story. And you can do that by visiting our website, halfthestoryproject.com and submitting a story. And you can also find that information on our Instagram at half the story. And there you have it, halfthestoryproject.com, and also at Instagram, at halfthestory. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Larissa May, founder of Half the Story, and we want to track this. Larissa, we'd love to continue to talk to you with a best story, weekly, monthly, whatever the flow. Send us a good story. We'll record it. We'll bring you on. We'll share it with our folks and our listeners, and hopefully they'll share their stories. The other side of the story with you as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, Larissa May's story, so many people's other side of the story, half the story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and this segment belongs to Jesse. We've got two stories from Jesse, or two pieces from Jesse, and the first is one of our favorites here on the show, Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. If fish could scream, an afternoon of fishing would be a lot less relaxing. I have no problem swallowing saliva while it's in my mouth. But once I spit it into a glass, it becomes disgusting to even think about swallowing. Wet towels clean up dry messes, and dry towels clean up wet messes. They should sell Ziploc bags in a Ziploc bag, not a box. I correct autocorrect more than it corrects me. The land of milk and honey Sounds a lot better than the land of goats and bees. Imagine if men could suffer from preceding hairlines that over time merged with your eyebrows. If a seeing eye dog takes a dump in public, who picks it up? Is the guy who writes the credits at the end of a movie put in the credits? If everything in the universe suddenly doubled in size, we would have no way of knowing. If cannibals were on a strictly human diet, would they be considered humanitarian? Having a high IQ with no people skills is like having a high-powered computer with no internet. When it's a good thing, we nailed it. But when it's a bad thing, we screwed it. Saying the Los Angeles Angels sounds pretty normal. But changing it to all Spanish or all English, and you would say Los Los Angeles Angeles or the the Angels Angels. Why doesn't Spider-Man ever bite anybody? One time I had I'm a Believer stuck in my head and I kept singing it. My friend told me if I didn't stop, she'd never talk to me again. I didn't believe her, but then I saw her face. What if there are ghost birds all over the place, but we just assume that they're regular birds? Shower thoughts. And thank you for that, Jesse. And this is another story Jesse found us at one of his favorite websites, one of ours too, and that's Reason.com, a great place to find out stories about all kinds of things as it relates to your citizenship, your money, and particularly the nanny state, that is the degree to which the government has just started getting more and more involved in our daily lives, particularly as parents. And so this story came from Zach Weissmuller at Reason. And, well, Mike Tang is refusing to reply with a court order and may face more jail time because of it. What's this story about? Let's take a listen. Mike Tang was charged with child endangerment for leaving his eight-year-old son in this parking lot a mile from home. It was supposed to be a life lesson. The night where I dropped him off, I just wanted to reinforce that money is hard to earn and if he doesn't do a good job at school, he could end up, you know, doing something like this or sleeping out here where the homeless people sleep. He dropped him not far from the recycling area and walked away. Sometimes there's a guy there, and you see people on bikes. Uh, They look kind of ragged, could be homeless. Mike says his son Isaac had been slacking in school, 
The last straw was when Mike caught Isaac cutting corners on his homework by reading his little sister's book instead of his own. It's an eight-year-old kid who didn't read his book. Right. Why would you do that? Well, first of all, I've tried other things, right, and they didn't work. So that's my take on it, and I'm trying different things. If this doesn't work, I might try something else next time. About 10 to 15 minutes after dropping Isaac, Mike sent Isaac's grandfather to go pick him up. It was 8 o'clock and getting dark. Turns out Isaac had already been picked up. He was in police custody. A stranger had spotted Isaac and called the cops. He said, why was I walking home? And did I know where my home was? And did you? You know how to walk home from the, the park? Yeah, I know how to walk from, from my school to my house. The cops arrested Mike, and he spent the night in county jail. A jury later convicted him, and the judge sentenced him to attend parenting classes and to a 56-day work release program picking up trash. Mike is refusing to serve the sentence, and there's an outstanding warrant for his failure to comply. He scrawled a response on top of the warrant and mailed it back. Walking on a public street, a sidewalk, at 7.45 p.m. is not child endangerment. Is Mike right, or did he jeopardize Isaac's safety? And was it appropriate for the police to intervene? Mike Tang is one of the many American parents who decided to give their kids some independence, in this case as a disciplinary measure, who have their parenting second-guessed by the authorities and find themselves arrested. Journalist Lenore Skenazy is the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement. Walking home a mile on a route that the kid already knew does not rise to the level of danger. It rises to the level of unusual, it rises to the level of perhaps controversial, but it was not literally dangerous. That's not a crime. The state of California says child endangerment occurs when someone willfully causes or permits a child to be placed in a situation where his or her person or health is endangered. Did Mike endanger Isaac? Their hometown of Corona has a remarkably low crime rate, and Isaac knew how to get home and properly use crosswalks. Police and county officials refused to comment for this story, but court transcripts from Mike's trial give us a sense of the arresting officer's thinking. Witness, in my opinion, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't have left my child there. I have a 20-year-old daughter that I would not let her walk home. If a 20-year-old walking home in a safe town is not safe enough, what is. When we hate the parent for what they're doing, we think they're wrong, we automatically overinflate the danger that we see the kid in. There was a study done at the University of California at Irvine asking people how much danger a kid was in when the parent let the child wait alone in the car. It turns out that the safety of the children wasn't what mattered most to the people surveyed in the study. They were actually passing moral judgment on the parents. So if a mom lets a kid wait in the car because accidentally she was hit by a truck and she was out cold, that's okay. The kid isn't in so much danger. But if she was going to meet her lover and left the kid in the car, oh my God, we think the kid is in way more danger. We are making moral judgments every time we see a kid unsupervised. And the more we hate the parent for leaving the child unsupervised, the more in danger we think the kid is. Maybe this is not the way you would discipline your child. It's not the way I disciplined my kids. 
but he's trying his best. And to treat parenting like a spectator sport, and if you wouldn't have done it that way, and I think that was wrong, nobody thinks that any other parent is raising their kids right. But if you're a cop and you have the power to arrest, and then you're a jury and you have the power to hang, you are giving too much power over an individual's parenting decisions to the state. If I had to do it all over again, you know, I'd do the same thing. Because of his refusal to serve his sentence, Mike faces possible jail time. Uh, if I don't have the freedom to discipline my kid, if they don't even have the freedom to walk outside, I'm already in prison right now. So what does it matter if I go to prison or not? And thanks, Zach Weissmuller, for that piece. And Reason.com is where you can find more like it. And I just know my own life, my dad, my mom made the decision to let me and my five buddies get on our little bicycles in northern New Jersey, go across the George Washington Bridge, go to Harlem, and play basketball. We left at 7 in the morning, and we came back when the sun went down. They'd be in jail right now. I learned my independence. I never got in trouble. And I learned how to play a damn good game of basketball. This is Lee Habib, Mike Tang's story, here on Our American Stories Than Any State. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. It's time for our final thought series, where we bring you the final thoughts from loved ones to those who've passed. An obituary, a eulogy, a note. And today's comes to us from Lawson Bader, who paid tribute to his late teacher, Erica. And he did it in the form of a letter to her brother. Let's take a listen to Lawson and his letter. Fall 2014 Dear Eberhardt, You and I have never met, but I knew your sister, Erica. I'm sorry I missed her memorial service. I did manage to go online and sign the obituary page, and I included myself in the Facebook group, but I feel compelled to write this. Two years after her death, because of what my family and I were just able to do. You see, I was one of Erica's kids. I know she had many of them, but I also think that I was part of her original gaggle, the ones who traveled with her to Germany that first time. We were her guinea pigs, as she called us. David was also in my class, In fact, he and I had been in Montessori school together in the early 1970s. I probably met Erica then, but I had no idea who she would become later in my life. (laughs) 
she changed my world. I know that's an overused phrase, but it's true. And not just because I learned to appreciate another language. Well, at least I tried learning German. She thought it fairly ironic that it actually became a college minor of mine later on. You should have seen when my dear friend Kurt and I would drive her crazy by using highly incorrect American versions of German phrases. We'd walk into her classroom and with a mischievous smile, we'd say, Ich hatte eine gute Zeit, and then run out the door before she would pretend to smack us. She was also instrumental in helping my brother through some rough times, but that's his story, not mine. Now, she changed my life because she made it so clear that the best teachers are the ones who know you, really know you. It's why I learned so much. I married a teacher, a seriously great one. So I appreciate Erica even more now that I see what's going on in the background of the best teachers. There is a cost to being a great teacher, but such a great reward too. She also changed me because she's the one who got this Scott to go to Germany. As you know, we were the group that did that first exchange. We lived with families who in turn became a family. I spend a lot of time these days working among people and groups that are committed to promoting the causes of freedom. I have had what I would call many interruptions in my life that have led me down that path. Erica is one of those interruptions, and I would simply not be as content with what I'm doing today without her. So allow me to tell you about it even though I'm really telling her. 31 years ago, we first visited Berlin. Do you remember, Erica? And in Berlin, I was changed. I loved being in your city of Hamburg, entertaining long evening hours with Herr Prain, discussing World War II and his experience of being forced into the Hitler Youth. We drove north through empty woods to Die Grenze, that ominous fence separating East and West Germany. And I saw Helga weep at that tragic reality of her separation from the village where she grew up, which we could just see over the fence a few kilometers away. I wonder how you felt when you journeyed away those many years ago. And then you took us to Berlin. In Berlin, the past collided with the present. The bullet-riddled Reichstag, the old German parliament building which backed up to Die Mauer. That infamous graffiti-adorned wall that surrounded and separated that city. The expanse of no-man's land, Potsdamer Platz, that great public square covering what remained of Hitler's bunker while providing an open firing range for the East German snipers. The contrast between colorful nightlife of the Kurfürstendamstrasse, West Berlin's equivalent of Times Square, 
contrasted with the dull gray of Alexanderplatz, which was the East Berlin response to Times Square, which, as you know, wasn't really much of a response, frankly. On wooden scaffolding, we would gaze up and over the wall and beheld anonymous binoculars staring back at us from behind cement block watchtowers. 31 years later, earlier this month, I returned to Berlin. It was a bit strange to be back. This time I was with my children, the youngest of whom, Margaret, was now the same age I think I was on that first visit. We spent most of our two days exploring what used to be the Soviet sector. We walked to Checkpoint Charlie, which of course marked the end of the American sector and the beginning of the Soviets' claim on the city, but we approached it from a decidedly different angle than I first did in 1983. Today, a large McDonald's dominates the intersection. The golden arch replacing what was once a tense set of switchback plates and armed guards. At 11 o'clock at night, Alexanderplatz is a mass of humanity, young and old, enjoying a balmy evening of street performers and endless food tents. Potsdamerplatz is now a temple to modern high rises, glitzy and gleaming and dismissive of what once lay beneath its foundations. A solitary guard tower remains, though, tucked away on a tree-lined street, where for a few euros you can have your photo taken with East German soldiers playing dress-up. Now the only place to see a Trabant, that ubiquitous East German car, is at a special museum that could actually fit perfectly with the kitschy Coney Island boardwalk. It even advertises where nostalgia is guaranteed. Apfelmann, the iconic symbol that was once used by the East Germans to epitomize the importance of work, now has its own capitalistic-infused retail store opposite the Franzosische Dom. The old Berlin cathedral, which lay so quiet and empty, was many decades behind the wall. Late one evening, we all took the subway to the Kudam, which is still the central shopping district of Berlin, just as it was in the 1970s and 80s. Gucci, Dijon, Zara, H&M, and Kenneth Cole stores line the street still bathed in the blue reflection off the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church windows. But unlike the last time I was there, it was quiet. The stores were closed for the night. A few couples lingered along the streets. Clearly the bustle had shifted to the eastern part of the great city. I wasn't looking for a metaphor. Maybe it was there. The capitalistic West becoming stale as it gives way to entrepreneurial energies from the East. Or maybe it was just a quiet night in August when many folks were on holiday. There was no need to make it more than it was, and you and I never agreed on our politics anyway. 31 years ago, you took me to Berlin. In the years that followed, I made multiple trips. 
but my last visit was just before Demauer came down. Now here I was back. Those early days had been sobering experiences. Now, 31 years later, I watched my children whiz through the Brandenburg Gate on bikes, soaking up the sunset and the populated plaza without a care or first-hand appreciation of how that place has changed. I had to stop and through misty eyes reach out and touch it. Erica, I touched it, profoundly grateful that their first visit to Berlin brought with it such greater promise and hope than did my visits those many decades before. Anyway, I thought you'd appreciate hearing that. Something you started, decades later, still having an impact. I miss you, as do many others. Thanks. Lawson. The power of one teacher to change a life. Lawson Bader. It changed his and his view toward freedom. And today he's the CEO of donor-advised fund called Donors Trust that helps freedom-minded givers with their giving. You can check them out at donorstrust.org. Our final thoughts series, Lawson Bader, on his final words to his German teacher, Erica, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 